Hi, and welcome to the FBCC Nature Journal, the podcast for everyone who loves nature. We're coming to you from the beautiful campus of Flathead Valley Community College at the foot of the Swan Mountain Range of Northwest Montana. I'm John Fraley, longtime instructor in wildlife conservation here at the college, and I also served 40 years with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Now, in the Nature Journal, we focus on the critters and quirks of nature found on the campus, the wide surrounding Flathead Basin, and all across Montana and beyond. Our producer is Colin Burkhardt, employee here at the FVCC Library, and thanks to Morgan Ray, the library director, for offering the library as our podcast home. Well, we're joined today by Tim Eichner, natural resources professor here at FVCC, and we're going to talk about understanding nature through the lens of technology. Tim, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, you got your uh, master's degree in a university back in Pennsylvania, and as you and I have talked, just coincidentally, my my sister was an all-American gymnast at the same school because you you were surprised that I knew about East Strasburg State University. So that's kind of a neat thing there. And first of all, we've talked before about the challenge of the boots on the ground and putting numbers on nature. How hard is it to put numbers on nature? Well, trying to attach numbers to nature is fairly difficult. There's so much variability that exists within our landscape, and I can stand in one location and get different numbers then if I move 10 feet over and, and collect it, the same type of data. So the variability within nature is just immense, and it's so hard to really capture that by collecting information. Good example of that is I was in aquatic science through a lot of my career, and collecting aquatic insects at a riffle, to get 95% confidence intervals on just the, the numbers of each species in the riffle, you have to take like 100 samples in a small riffle to get that, that confidence interval. Sometimes you get lucky, like we've done in Silver River before, where just we take five or six samples and they're all pretty similar, but usually not. And so it's a challenge. And then there is sort of a, an aesthetic or scientific value of nature that diminishes when you put numbers on it. And I was talking to you about the mitigation. Like Hungry Horse Reservoir, how much would you say a foot of water is, is worth at Hungry Horse Reservoir for power generation? <laughs> I'd say it's worth a tremendous amount. That's a good answer. <laughs> a million dollars. Holy mouth. A foot. Wow. Because it goes through 17 more dams when it goes down to Columbia. And so you don't want to get into the point where you're saying, well, fish are, a bull trout's worth $500 and an elk is worth $10,000 because once you do that, then you can, it can be bought off, basically. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, well, a foot of water is worth a million, so what are we talking <laughs> about here? So first of all, Tim, on your putting numbers on nature, we have the traditional ways of doing it that we talked about. And then there's been a lot of advancements of technology, and that's what you're kind of specializing in and teaching your students about. So let's start off with the GPS collars in their use of understanding wildlife patterns and home ranges. What do you have to say about that? Well, I mean, really what we're talking about is the, the context of geospatial technology where we can, we can look at different data and how it relates to each other to understand patterns and how it fits into the environment that this data exists in. And GPS has really given us a significant amount of power to be able to track things continuously. And with wildlife callers, we can see depending on what our frequency is, but maybe twice a day intervals of where that particular animal is. And not just that one animal, but the multiple colors that exist within the entire ecosystem within, say, the Northern Continental Divide. And we can then look to see at where their preference is for habitat use. Yeah, yeah. Where are they going to get their prey? Where are they going to den? We can look at that spatial component significantly. And it tells the whole story of the animal. Like I was telling you, there's a a couple slides I show in my wildlife class where a particular grizzly bear that was actually living in the Flathead Valley with a satellite collar, we, you got, you know, multiple times a day locations. And it would hang around Winninger Slough and then go over to this 
private piece of land and cross the cross old highway too and go over into some fields i mean and most of that movement was at night and mm-hmm. hardly anyone ever saw this bear but we would have no idea it did all those things and we were just looking at each time we flew we wouldn't know where it was in between so that's pretty neat and yeah, satellite-based wildlife telemetry is, is really the way to go if you can afford it. It's expensive. Yeah. I wish all of our grizzly bears behaved that way. That's a, <laughs> that's a well-trained bear. That's right. <laughs> he just didn't cause any trouble at all. So you uh, also talked about Landsat, satellite-based remote sensing. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, from the traditional perspective, we collect data by going in the field and, and sampling something. But over the years, and actually several decades, <laughs> we've been collecting data through satellite-based systems, through remote sensing. So Landsat in particular has given us 50 years worth of data that allows us to track really awesome things. Where vegetation exists, where it's changing, where vegetation is getting healthier or declining in health, where glaciers are retreating or expanding. There's so many different scientific questions that you can ask through the data that's captured by Landsat satellites that is vastly rich in terms of the time element. 50 years worth of data is just amazing. And is that is that some of the data that's used on uh, applications like Google Earth and, and I guess uh, to show you the surface of the Earth and what it looks like? It, it is, yeah. So Google Earth is unique where it kind of taps into a bunch of different imagery services. So when you're, when you're zoomed out and not too close, it's going to use Landsat. But as you get closer and closer, Landsat's not a high quality in terms of the pixel resolution as other imagery so it'll start switching to like traditional aerial photography which isn't updated as often as landsat might be every two years that gets updated as opposed to landsat that scene is updated every 16 days so again depends on what type of level you're you're viewing and there's a lot of practical applications as you remember a few years ago i was searching for a downed plane Mm -hmm. and where it was located on a timbered ridge and what we did is we looked at uh, the google earth from before the date that that plane went down and then after because the jumpers that went in cut a heliport mm-hmm. and we saw the heliport show up on google mm-hmm. earth so we knew that had to be the spot and you were helping me with that so tell us about drone technology every once in a while i'll see you out there flying these drones around <laughs> campus what the heck are you doing <laughs> everybody always wonders why is a forester flying a drone yeah. <laughs> and it's not just because it's fun to do and cool but it's also it's a really valuable tool for us to actually to see our planet from above. I mean, that's what we ultimately want to do is get that aerial perspective so we can understand what's occurring on the ground. So in terms of traditional forestry, we can get a aerial photograph that is stitched together across the whole forest that we're managing. We can also create from that data set a a 3D model. So if we have the trees in 3D, what do you think we can start measuring from that, John? We We can actually measure the trees height yeah right we can also start viewing it from its crown width as well and then through some regression formulas or some things we can calculate what the diameter might be of that particular tree so you can actually do a timber survey we can yeah and we can actually through let's just call it spectral analysis we can get into species id as well because each each tree species kind of reflects light differently you look at a large especially in the fall, it's going to be Mm. golden and Mm. and something, another species is going to be a different color. So you can look at that light information to kind of classify that dot, that treetop, as a species as well. Do you ever use that over at the college's uh, forest east of Kalispell here? We do, yeah. I fly it over at our Foothills campus where we're fortunate to have a kind of experimental forest forest of about 60 acres in size. So I, I have that captured 
and I want to keep doing it every so often so we can track the growth of that forest over time. Neat, neat. So tell us about the LIDAR technology or LIDAR technology. What, how do you pronounce it? LIDAR. LIDAR, yeah. okay. Yeah, so probably like, most people we're talking to here have never heard of it. Probably not, although, I mean, it's going to be mainstream. And actually, people who have the latest two versions of the iPhone actually have a form of LIDAR in their phones, really? which blows my mind. Anyway, so LIDAR is really a way in which we can use light, the speed of light, to detect the distance an object is from the sensor. So if you have your iPhone, it can detect how far away a person is from the iPhone itself, or the ground is from the iPhone. Now, from our perspective, we're not flying a drone, or sorry, we're not flying a, a phone in the air. Yeah. We have sophisticated LiDAR sensors that are able to track space in three-dimensional, all the way from the bare earth to the tops of the vegetation. And that's one of the powerful, powerful things about LiDAR is it penetrates canopies, so we can actually see what the bare earth elevation is. Wow, that's so. amazing. And, and now a lot of this technology, and you're, you've been doing quite a bit of this, you use it in, in fire. And some of the things that you mentioned were distributive data collection, regular updates, Thermal data, NIROPS, and MODIS. Give us a <laughs> give us the three the the two minute simple well, explanation of that. Okay, so I do serve as a GIS specialist for incident management teams. We manage large wildfires in the Western United States, and we support the informational needs, the intelligence of the incident during its duration. So, with that said, everybody needs to know where the fire is, what's hot, what's not, where have we put line in order to mitigate the potential mm -hmm. damage of that fire and so forth. So all of that has to be tracked spatially through our data systems that we create. So we have a distributive environment where I can give multiple people editing capabilities out in the field that then they can send back to us to identify where activities have occurred and what's happening in the field. So the fire managers inside can have almost a, a real-time view of what's happening out there on the line, and it can be updated on a regular basis. And we talked about NCWeb, which you go through that that website there. The, right. Some of it's used in NCWeb, right, to show the perimeter of the fire. And yeah, like primarily the perimeter of the fire and just that general information is automatically it, it automatically pulls it from our data. So we're managing the internet. It's a automatically pulled from our data and placed up on NCWeb. So I don't even ha I don't even have to go and place that up on wow. NCWeb. It's right. an automatic workflow. Neat. Pretty so. Neat. The future. You're talking about the digital twin of the Earth. Tell us about that. Well, I think uh, us geospatial folks have been talking about a, a digital twin longer than other people, but right now it's starting to get mainstream in some other parts, this metaverse that you're starting to hear about right now. But with that said, our world, we said it's at the beginning of this podcast that uh, there's so much variability that's really hard to understand. Right. But if we're able to bring that variability into a digital environment, like a geographic information systems, we can begin analyzing it to gain greater insights as to what's there. Sure. How do we summarize that variability to characterize that population that exists? Well, so. that's exciting, Tim, and you've really developed this to a tremendous level and, and sharing this all with your students, and we really appreciate you coming on and uh, telling us about it. So thanks a lot for coming on, Tim. All right. Thanks, John. I, I really appreciate it. That's all the time we have for this episode of The Nature Journal. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Fraley, and I'll see you next week.